of the words should be there, plus some chords. Uh, some of those verses won't be sung, but just follow me, and we'll have a good time worshiping the Lord. When I survey the wondrous cross which the Prince of Glory died My riches gain I count but lost and all my pride. Lord, I didn't, I didn't get that. I was getting a little 
there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble. complete 
Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Charlie. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for what you're doing. God, we just, uh, God, we pray for your healing amongst us. God, we pray for your healing in our, not only physical, but spiritual healing, Lord, in our community, in our state, our country, in this world. God, we thank you so much for given your life for us. God, now just hide him behind the cross and uh, just empower him with your Holy Spirit. God, may we just uh, come to you with sins confessed and hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Trouble getting down. No, that's just fine. If you have your Bibles with you, open to Mark chapter 8, be looking at verses 31 through 33. Mark chapter 8, 31 through 33. Starting verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly or openly talking about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Does anyone, you don't have to, I guess you can honk if you like, have a cross necklace on this morning? Perhaps you received one uh, some years ago, or perhaps you have one that you got just recently at, that necklace has a cross on the end. And uh, I always thought instead of getting a basket for Easter, perhaps that would be a better gift to receive. It's a special piece of jewelry because it does have the cross on the end of it. And my question to you this morning, have you ever thought about what the cross really is or what it was? The cross was a form of public execution 
that was reserved for the worst criminals. It was designed to kill you, but kill you very slowly in the most painful way and the most humiliating way possible. It was ugly. It was rough. It uh, didn't have a very good standing among the people. When you talked about the cross, it'd be like me talking about Huntsville and the death uh, cells they have down there, people on death row, what kind of pictures conjure up in your mind. And then the, when people were crucified, they basically would suffocate to death. So you're wearing that cross around your neck. I, I'm not trying to tell you shouldn't wear it or trying to persuade you not to wear it. I just want you to wrap your mind around what that cross meant in first century thinking when someone mentioned the cross or they talked about someone being crucified, what kind of images would come up in their minds in that time. And here's a beautiful picture because we have that cross now and we see it as beautiful. It represents God's power, God's beauty, salvation, mercy, love, forgiveness, and grace. It's amazing to me how God can take something that's so ugly, so repulsive, and transform it into something brand new and beautiful. We're going to look at two important aspects of the resurrection that go hand in hand, the reality of the event and the amazing transformation that takes place. The great proof we have of the resurrection that Jesus foretold of it. In our passage, he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Began to teach that this teaching was new. And it must, he, that he must suffer. And that indicates divine necessity that that had to happen. That this was the ordained plan of God. And the most obvious scripture that comes to my mind, and perhaps yours, is Isaiah 52, 13, excuse me, Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, verse 12. Talks about the suffering servant. So this was ordained. It's nothing that caught Jesus by surprise. And he's trying to tell the disciples about this. And he said he's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And he will be killed. Not only he'd be killed, but he also talked about after three days, rise again. And he tells us in the text that he was stating the manner plainly. And when that happens, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, this is a very sharp contrast that we see back in verse 30. If you go back right before these verses, Jesus is asking the disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say you're Elijah, some type of prophet. And Peter said, no, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, very good. The spirit revealed this to you, not yourself. But he tells them not to tell anybody about that. But this, he doesn't rebuke. He doesn't uh, hold back on this. He's telling them plainly and not telling them to be silent about it. There's no silence about the necessity of his suffering and his death. Peter is rebuked because the nationalistic concept he had the Messiah. Peter was trying to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. And some have thought that get behind me refers to following Jesus. Likely it meant get out of sight. Stop tempting me, because this is not what I am here to do. And Peter's protest even continues to challenge us today to accept the scandal of a suffering Messiah 
and deceptive implications for discipleship. My point being, Jesus made it plain that the, that the student is not above the teacher, that the slave is not above the master. If our teacher and master suffered, guess what, dearly beloved, we are going to suffer too. The great proof of which I talked about just a minute ago is the resurrection. It tells us that everything Jesus said was true. He foretold about this, and it happened. It tells us that his sacrifice for our sins accomplished its work. Since Jesus rose from the grave, we know that all who believe in him will be raised from the dead as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 and following. If Christ had not been raised, your faith was worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Jesus rose. And since we are his disciples, guess what? The grave, the consequences of sin, which is death, no longer hold a grip on you and I. Yes, we will physically die one day, but that's simply just crossing over to eternity. Jesus has beaten sin and death. They have no more victory on us. And yes, I like to stick around and see what happens here on earth, watch my grandchild, grandchildren grow up, but I am ready. Because on that day, I will see my risen Lord Savior face to face. And think about that for a second. Paul tells us to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. In that moment to see what you believe in all this time, your faith, to see your faith now will become your sight, Scripture tells us. And we look back in history, we can see that the historical witnesses proved that Jesus' earliest followers were extremely serious about their devotion to him, his teachings, and his resurrection. The senator historian Tacticus, in his writing Annals of Imperial Rome, about 116 A.D., he wrote to Emperor Nero how Christians that he that he persecuted. Look, he said he Nero had blamed the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Nero and those people couldn't believe these people were dying for this guy named Christ. They were dying for him. And they were treating him as a god so devoted to him that are willing to die. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote about Jesus and his followers as well. Pliny the Younger, a Roman governor, complained in a letter how early Christians he persecuted would, quote, sings him to Christ as to a god. My point bringing this up, something had to happen. This was true. The people won't die for a lie. And even the people who rejected Christ, didn't believe in this, was telling us even the earliest followers of Christ knew that he was risen from the dead and no one strayed from that from that truth. There are other witness or witnesses that confirm that something monumental and transforming had taken place in the followers of Christ. Even the pagan Roman rulers, excuse me, testified to the fact that the earlier followers of Jesus, who knew Jesus, did not consider him to be an ordinary man. And Dr. Paul Mayer, professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University calls this, quote, positive evidence from a, from a hostile source. In essence, if a source admits a fact that is silently not in its favor, the fact is genuine. So here's the point I'm trying to make. Something happened. 
and the followers of Christ. Something happened to the apostles. Something really transformed them, and they stuck to the message that Christ had indeed risen from the dead. People have written about it in human history. And if you look at before the crucifixion, what were the disciples doing? They were running scared. Peter denied Christ three different times before he was crucified there before the Sanhedrin. My point being, disciples were scared, but something happened to them. Because here's Peter running scared, and just a few weeks later, he was there on the same temple steps telling those people, the person you crucified is indeed the Son of God. What happened to Peter? What gave him that boldness to really step out there and proclaim the truth when he had the Holy Spirit, but he knew what he saw? He couldn't forget what he saw. He has seen the risen Lord Jesus. He was telling people about it. You have the great cause of persecution and rejection. Acts chapter, 12, excuse me, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now about the time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Josephus uh, talks about how brother James of Jesus was stoned to death by Jewish leaders. The second century church father Origen wrote of Peter's crucifixion. And tradition tells us that all the apostles died a martyr's death. And here's my point again. They were claiming the truth, and nothing changed. Something had to happen. Why would they not change the message? All faced significant persecution for the belief in the resurrection. Now, Christianity is not the only world religion that has martyrs. However, what makes these different or so unique is that they died for a belief that they saw with their own eyes. They saw the risen Lord Jesus. Many have died for what they truly believed as a result of what others had told them. But the apostles willingly gave their lives for what they saw with their own eyes than to deny the resurrection. And this determined and adherence to believe and proclaim the resurrection brought them no fame, power, or status. Rather, it cost them everything. Here we find the beautiful aspect of this reality, the transformation in the hearts of the disciples because the certainty of the resurrection, their heart was changed. Something happened, and they would rather die and be persecuted than to deny the truth. And let me ask you this morning, are you willing to accept persecution and even maybe your own life at one point rather than deny the truth of Christianity? You know, when persecution hits, there's three things that happen. Number one, some people walk away, don't have nothing to do with the church, or Christ anymore. They simply know they walk away. Second thing may happen, people start to compromise. No, I, I'm not going to deny him, but I'm going to just tell people what they want to hear so they won't persecute me and save my own life. Third thing that happens, people's faith grows stronger and it spreads even more. And we find ourselves in the middle of this crisis. Here we are in our cars. It's happening all over the nation. But let me remind you of something. Human history will tell you any time you try to stop out the gospel message, any time you try to persecute the church, it starts spreading more like wildfire because you cannot stomp it out. In fact, I would submit to you this morning, I would submit to you this morning that perhaps God 
is allowing this to happen, the kind of queen house, to see who's really committed to him. Who's going to go out there and stand for the truth rather than compromise? We need to stand on the truth. We see a change of heart, the transformational power of the resurrection. Peter spoke boldly about Jesus in Acts chapter 4. Him and John both. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Something had happened to Peter. He was no longer the scared, timid man. He was speaking with conviction, boldly proclaiming the truth. Transformed from unbearable shame to a proclamation of God's amazing grace, his mercy, and his love. No longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of God. We have this fear epidemic throughout our country. Don't succumb to fear. Remember who you belong to. You are a child of God. Before the crucifixion that I mentioned earlier, all 12 of the disciples deserted Jesus and ran away. But after the resurrection, they all brutally proclaimed the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. Something happened to them that can only be explained through the first-hand witness of the resurrection of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And now we come to the empty tomb, a symbol of hope. Think about this for a second. The resurrection transformed the cold, hard, heartless tomb into a symbol of hope. Matthew 28, 13 shows little debate, if any, the tomb was empty or not. Because even Jesus' distractors admitted it was. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 12 and 13. When they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. The priest could not produce proof that Jesus' body remained in the tomb. This statement that they gave the soldiers seemed to provide a plausible explanation of the empty tomb. However, over the years and decades, their lie was unraveled as the disciples rate, uh, faced persecution and deaths for their assistance that the tomb was empty and the body could not be found because Jesus is risen from the dead. I said this earlier. Throughout the course of time, no one argues that the tomb is empty. Everybody agrees, yeah, the tomb was empty that day. The question becomes, how do you say the tomb? Was empty. Did, was Jesus not really dead? They took him off the cross and somehow the cold air resuscitated and he climbed out. No. The soldiers would make sure he was dead before they took him off the cross. Well, perhaps the disciples came and stole the Bible. They had Roman guards there. They would die if they abandoned their post. They were too weak to move the stone. It would take many people to move that stone back. That wipes that out. So how do you explain the tomb's empty? i tell you how the tomb's empty, and I believe most of you agree with me. Jesus is no longer there. He rose from the dead. That's how it got empty. That's the great question that everybody's faced with this morning. You cannot accept the reality that the tomb is empty. Will you accept the truth and admit the truth that he is indeed risen this morning? You know, he showed himself or he was seen by more than 500 different witnesses. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 4 and 6. He was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And listen to this. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of whom remain until now. 
But some have followed suit. When this was written to the Christian church, Paul said, hey, five or 500 people saw the risen Lord. Go ask them what they saw. Some of them are still living. Go, go ask them. Here's my point. Hope, listen to me, hope is now found in the tomb. Why? Because Jesus was not found in the tomb. You go to any royal religious leader, you go look at their grave, what's left of their body is still in the ground. But Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, he's no longer there. He is gone. He is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for you and me. Author Clarence W. All said it like this, quote, The resurrection of Jesus changes the face of death for all his people. Death is no longer a prison, but passage into God's presence. Easter says you can push through truth in the grave, but it won't stay in there. The resurrection completely transforms death for those who will believe in it. Without the resurrection, death is a tragic ending to life. With the resurrection, death is just the beginning of eternal life. Without the resurrection, death is where our strength finally runs out. But with the resurrection, death is where our eternal glory begins. Wow. Resurrection does not make it a little better, us a little better. It's not just one step on the road to self-improvement. It does not help us to be good. Being good enough or kind enough, not what God is looking for. To be human means to be broken, to be divided. To be human means we have the potential for incredible nobility, moments of exceptional kindness and generosity. It means to also have moments of selfishness, greed, and desperate depravity. But in God, there's no duplicity. There's no corruption. So to be human means to be separate from God and need of forgiveness and transformation that can only be found in resurrection if we want to be with God and in his presence. Some will say, well, God wants to separate himself from me just because I'm human. I don't want anything to do with a guy like that. But we fail to understand that we separate ourselves. The crucifixion and the resurrection is God's work to close the gap. God loves you and I so much that he made a way for you despite your inherited and willful weakness of humanity. It'd be like if I threw a huge party, an incredibly huge mansion, and I handed you an invitation and said to you, in order to get this party, get this party, you need an invitation. You respond, well, if I need an invitation, I don't want to come to a party like that. Well, I gave you an invitation. God has given that invitation to everyone who's willing to put their faith in Christ. He didn't make it too hard or difficult for us. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you don't want to accept this invitation, he's not going to force you to take it. Understand this. God's call is not for you to be better. His plea is not to get it under control, but his call is today, come. Come to the cross and die to your control. Die to the substitutes for God in your life. Die to your sin that lingers around you like bad breath. And take his invitations, lay down your pride, to be transformed by the resurrection. Let the righteousness of Jesus make you right. Let the goodness of God to make you good. Look to the forgiveness of the cross to make you whole and let the power of the resurrection make you free. Amen. Let me remind you of where we began. That cross 
as some of us wear as jewelry, maybe on our wrist or on our neck. It reminds us that it's God's heart. Oh, please listen to me as I wrap this up. It's God's heart to take which is coarse, dark, broken, and to resurrect it into something beautiful. You have an opportunity to respond to God's invitation now. And I pray that you experience and have experienced what it means to have the most ugly moments transformed into a story of God's forgiveness, love, and grace. I know most of you here in your cars are followers of Christ. And I would tell you that he is calling you into a deeper walk with him. What is standing in your way? See, we are saved by God's grace through faith. And keep reading Ephesians that we are to do good works that he established beforehand. So we do what we do not to earn anything. It's to tap in because we have our faith. When we do works for God, it's expressing our faith in him that he's done everything we possibly need. And that taps into God's grace. If you truly believe and you understand God's grace, it will really free you up. That is freedom. Because there's nothing you do to make God love you more or love you less. There's nothing you can do to make God like you more or like you less. He is all sufficient. His grace is sufficient. And the way you tap into that grace, you put faith into Jesus Christ. And you put your faith into action. Because of that faith, and you realize how good God is to you. You do these things to exercise your faith. We got it backwards. We want to work our way in. We think we just do this or that. We're going to, God's going to like me more. He'll bless me more. No. His grace is sufficient. It's all that you need. I want to conclude with this this morning. We find ourselves, like I said earlier, in this unique situation. Whoever thought that a virus would bring the United States almost to her knees. Think about it. The economy, people's health, people's freedom moving around, gone in an instance. Literally almost overnight. Dearly beloved, God is reminding us how quickly things can change. He is the giver of all good gifts. He's the one who gave me my wife, Tammy. He's the one who gave my three girls, Brooke, Allison, and Madeline. He's the one who gave me Madison, my grandchild, another one soon to be born. He's the one who brought me here to Forest Ridge Baptist Church. He's the one who puts you in my lives. He's the one who called me to his ministry. He's the one that sustains me, gives me strength to do what I do. He's the one that helps me when I get confused and stumble over my words. He is the source. And I'm up here today because I want to exercise my faith and know my God is good enough and big enough to handle anything that comes my way. You think the church is going to stop because we can't meet in the building? No, no, no. I tell you this. If the grave can't stop them, nothing can. And he's calling you and I to walk with him, to follow him all the way. So I hope during this time, that you'll be strengthened and encouraged 
and in confidence, knowing that our God is big enough to handle anything. Quit looking to the president. Quit looking to Congress. Quit listening to the state. It's about time the church, myself included, get on our knees and look to the true source of every good thing, and that's our Lord, our God. And to repent and say, God, I'm sorry about putting so much faith in this or that. I should be putting all my faith and trust in you. Remember the old hymnal? Remember, I'm not called to sing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not talk to the alone, but wholly lean on Jesus alone. On cross the solid rock I stand. What's it say? All of the ground is sinking sand. We have seen that played out in real time. What a golden opportunity to reach people for Christ. To tell them about the hope. It doesn't mean you're not concerned. That you don't have feelings of maybe worry and anxiety. But you have this overwhelming peace of God that says, you know what? God has us under control. I'm not going to fret. I'm going to put my faith in him. Because dearly beloved, it comes down to this. This is what we actually believe what we, you know, do we really believe what we profess or not? So hold in there. Do not give up. Dig in and hold on. God is faithful. He hasn't left you. He's right there with you. Walking with you. Talking with you. Comforting you. If you would if we just take time out to stop. Perhaps that's what this is all about. Be still. And I think he spoke to that to my life many times. But it's kind of like now, God, I got to, you know, he's God. He can speak to the whole world at once. He's telling everybody on the whole planet, hey, hold up. Stop. Quit what you're doing. Look up here. Those things are not God. <laughs> I'm God, he says. Look to me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, your mercy, and your grace. I pray for those who are gathered here in their cars, dear God, that they would feel your presence in a real and tangible way, that you would pull them close to your side. And for those who are watching at home, over the Internet, whatever they're doing right now, dear God, I pray that they will Feel your presence as well. And I pray right now that they will feel your peace just overflow them. Father, pull them close to your side. For those who have never given their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that may happen today. For those of us who have professed faith, may we become even stronger in these days and exercise our faith, not just by words, but also by deeds. We look forward to that day when you call us to be home. Because we know we pass from this life. It's just the beginning. And we look forward to that day. A day of no more disease, no more crime, and no more goodbyes. But until that day comes, dear God, may we be found as faithful followers of Christ. So we can hear on that day, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, it's all about you. It's all about your glory. It's about your message. 
We thank you and we praise you for who you are today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. Glad to see you in your cars. Have a blessed day. It's Easter. Remember, our Lord has risen. You have another song, brother? Yes, sir. All right. Let's all join together before we depart and sing this hymn that I remember all my life. It was this was the go-to hymn on Easter. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day. Jesus, my Lord. Up from the grave he arose, with the mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah. Christ arose, vainly they watch his bed, Jesus my Savior, vainly they seal the dead, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose, with the mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Death cannot keep his prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he rose, with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Amen. Amen. Wait, wait. <laughs>